Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, I'm Hannah Webster and I'm the Joint Head of Programme for People in Place here at the RSA and it's really great to welcome you all to today's event. I am delighted to be joined by journalist Vicky Spratt. Vicky's research and reporting focuses on housing policy in the UK. In 2020, she was nominated as Journalist of the Year at the Drum Awards for Online Media. And in 2021, her stories delving into Britain's housing emergency saw her shortlisted for the British Journalism Award. She's currently iPaper's housing correspondent and writer and editor at Refinery29. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Vicky is also the author of a fascinating new book, Tenants, The People on the Frontline of Britain's Housing Emergency, which traces decades of policy decisions to show how and why Britain's private rented sector is in crisis and what needs to be done to fix it. At the RSA, we talk a lot about housing and economic insecurity and how not knowing or being able to be competent in your financial future plays a huge role in your well-being. Tenants reveals how for those in the private rented sector, uh, there is an unbalanced housing system which by design rewards landlords over tenants. With announcements last week that the Renters Reform Bill is back on the government agenda, tenants is an incredibly timely contribution to discussions on where we go next. Vicky, tenants is a hugely impressive body of work on how we reach the depths of emergency in Britain's housing crisis. And in it, you cover two broad themes, uh, which are around the policy and power surrounding rental markets and what you call squalor, the conditions that exist within the sector and the risk that it brings. To begin with, I wondered if you just give us an overview of those two themes and where you see the problems lying in Britain's private rented market. Well, thank you for your kind words about the book. Um, I think that housing is the centre of all inequality, which makes complete sense because home is where everything begins. It's where you go to sleep every night, it's where you wake up every morning, it's where you are your most vulnerable and it's where you ought to be able to be the most secure and safe. Um, and sadly, for too many people in Britain, that is simply not the case. And I think there are very real, tangible reasons for that, um, huge problems which have solutions. Uh, there's a huge imbalance of power in the private rental sector because of the way it exists right now. Um, landlords have more rights than tenants. That may be about to change with the renters' rights bill um, if it ever becomes law. We've now been promised it several times in the Queen's speech, but it has yet to go through Parliament as a piece of legislation. Um, until it does, the situation that we exist in is that Landlords can evict tenants uh, at any time with a very short notice period without ever having to give them a reason. Um, and there is a, another problem which speaks to the rising cost of essentials, which is rising rents and unaffordable rents. That won't be taken care of by, by the Renters Reform Bill. Um, sorry, it's rent, there's Renters Reform Bill and Renters Rights Bill, and this piece of legislation has been through so many lives. So if I use the two interchangeably, you have to forgive me, I'm talking about the same thing. Um, but, but unlike Scotland, in England and Wales, there is currently no mechanism for rent control um, or rent regulation. And this all, as I trace in the book, goes back to the 80s. Um, before the 1998 Housing Act, um, which, was, which was brought in under Thatcher, we did actually have rent regulation in this country. Um, and renters had far, far more rights than they currently do. So these, these developments in the private rented sector, which I think are causing so much precarity for people are relatively recent. 
Um, and it's, it's no surprise to me that we now have what I would describe as a, a wealth-based class system in this country. And I think housing plays a huge role in that. Um, and that links to squalor, uh, which we now, we now have a situation where many, many homes in the private rented sector, we can never be completely sure exactly how many, do not meet basic health and safety standards. One thing that the renters reform bill will do is bring in a decent home standard, which currently they have in social housing for privately rented homes, which means that they have to, you know, do things like not have mold um, or damp or vermin or electrical faults, quite basic stuff that you'd expect from your home if you're paying money to live there. Um, they'll bring that into the private rental sector, but at the moment that's that's not enforceable, even though there are mechanisms for tenants to complain about poor conditions. But I think the deregulation of the private rental sector in the 80s in favor of private landlords sort of took away renters' bargaining power um, and also their, their legal rights. So now if you are living in really, really poor conditions, and I've I've been into some homes that you would not, you wouldn't wish anyone to live in, they're just completely falling apart, moldy, black mold everywhere, mice running around, leaks. Um, but, but unfortunately, because of Section 21 evictions, a landlord can evict you if you complain. They're not supposed to. That's known as a revenge eviction, and it's um, it's unlawful, but it happens all the time. We know that it does. So I think that's how those two things connect. If you take away the rights of a particular group of people, in this case, private renters, um, and you undermine their position, their security, in a market where there is money to be made, which is true of landlording true of private renting a lot of people invest in homes so they can rent them out um, if you take away the rights of the renter then a lot of people take advantage of them which is I think what what, what I've seen certainly up and down the country and that that point on no fault evictions or section 21 evictions I think comes across so clearly in your book just how maddening it is to be someone that's uh, at the other end of that that's that's dealing with an eviction um, you have examples where you can't uh, get support until you are actually homeless, even if you have an eviction. And if you make an attempt to speed that up, uh, you've got you've got examples in the book of where that that counts you as being intentionally homeless. So it does feel like there's a there's a situation where the landlord is really the focal point of the policy, and and the tenant is is an afterthought in some of that. Um, a lot of what you talked about just now, you mentioned, is is relatively short term, and I think if we think about the even shorter term of the last two years, COVID nineteen has obviously had a huge relationship with our, how, our housing and our homes and where we live and the policy that surrounds it. And I think uh, you talk as well in the book about a lot of policy changes uh, uh, that have happened over the short, over the longer term, but more short term, there's been lots of change in the last two years. I just wondered if you thought uh, any of that had kind of supported tenants during this time or whether you think there's further to go as we think about COVID-19 and its impact in, in the longer term. Well, I'm, I'm glad that comes across in the book because the book was actually rewritten because of the pandemic. We had a more or less a finished manuscript. And then um, I knew as soon as I started reporting on what was going on with the coronavirus legislation and, and indeed how the pandemic was unfolding, how um, scary this would be for a lot of private renters. If you lost your job and couldn't pay your rent and you could be evicted before the eviction ban was brought in, which the government did eventually bring in after much back and forth in the first lockdown. 
Um, although I hesitate to call it an eviction ban, that's the government's language. It wasn't really a ban, it was a stay on evictions. Your landlord could still fully intend to evict you during the pandemic, but they just couldn't take you to court and do it. And it was basically just a delay. And then what we saw was a huge backlog in the courts. So it wasn't really a ban at all. Um, but that was brought in, which was which was a good thing um, temporarily. But then it was taken away. And I think, you know, now, several years into this crisis because it's still going on we're not completely out of the pandemic we are now in a situation where inflation is rising and lots of people can't afford basics um food energy and rent and i'm hearing from people regularly that they're, they're making really tough choices between paying rent heating their homes feeding their families um and the government could could bring back an eviction pause if they wanted to but they haven't um, it also strikes me that you could have just sped up the end of Section 21 if you'd wanted to during the pandemic, but that was never on the table. In fact, that legislation got delayed. So there has been a lot of back and forth and a lot of change. And I think what I took away as a journalist from reporting on those policies as they were being rolled out um, in the first lockdown was this. Things can happen really quickly when they need to. And that's good because it shows how fast the Westminster machine can move but it also made me feel slightly disheartened because these are things that housing experts have been calling for for years and end of an enter section 21 stop evicting people make sure that the benefits available actually cover rent um, and when there's a crisis it was possible to bring in new measures, even if they were then taken away, or in the case of the benefits to help people pay rent frozen at 2019 levels, even though rents are now reaching record highs as we come out of the pandemic, because landlords are putting up their rents. For, for many reasons, I think people have relocated. So some areas are now more, there's more demand in, in, in parts of the housing market where there weren't before outside of London. So if people have left London and gone somewhere like Bristol, for instance, or you know, many other places around the country, rents are going up there. Um, but also I, I do wonder the extent to which landlords are passing on their own concerns about living costs to their tenants, which of course they can do because there's no rent regulation. And we don't have the same urgency, I don't think, um, in Westminster that we did in the first lockdown. So even though I would argue, based on what I'm hearing from people and what I'm seeing when I go out reporting that rising bills um, and it rising inflation is just as serious um, as the economic fallout of, of the pandemic. The response is not an emergency response and it's not moving as quickly as it should. And we just had you know the, the confirmation that that the renters reform bill, renters' rights bill will will eventually happen. But that is something that people can't really wait for when they're making these tough choices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you title it a housing emergency rather than a housing crisis in your book. I think that probably speaks to that. Was that a conscious decision around the language to, to elevate it to an emergency and, and the changes that need to come with that? Yeah, it was a conscious decision. And I think um, we've all become so used to the term housing crisis. I think we all we all say it, we all know what it means. But I worry that it's, it's kind of lost its significance a bit. And also a crisis 
implies something unexpected, something unpredictable, or as they kept saying of the pandemic, unprecedented. Um, I don't think that what we're seeing in housing is any of those things. This has been building and building and building for about 30 years now. We've been in a bit of a pressure cooker with the private rented sector as it has kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, there are now millions of people renting homes from private landlords for two, two key reasons. One, we don't have enough social housing because we sold loads off through right to buy another policy brought in under Thatcher and didn't replace it. Um, so a lot of people who would once have lived in social housing now rely on a private landlord um, and, and, and potentially are, are paying their rent through, through the state support that they receive. So money that would once have been going back into social housing is going into the pockets of private landlords because we don't have enough social housing. Reason two is that house prices have gone in one direction, broadly speaking, bar two dips over the last um, couple of decades. And that has made it harder for people to get on the housing ladder. So people are privately renting for longer. And that has put a lot of pressure on the private rented sector um, where basically lots of individuals who are not social workers um, or local authorities provide housing, which is the most essential service of all to people who are often sometimes, you know, in really, really tricky situations and, and need, need support and need to know how much their outgoings are going to be. And yet they live in a home where the landlord could kick them out anytime and put their rent up. And if you can't plan for where you're going to live, or you don't know how much your outgoings are going to be next year because your rent might go up, how can you do anything? It's, uh, it's horrific. And it's so stressful for people in these situations. And I think it, it fosters so much instability. I'm no longer a renter, but I rented for years. And I remember that feeling of constant disquiet and sort of background harm of anxiety because I'd be like, well, this is where I live. This is my home. Will I be able to afford it next year? I'm going to have to move further away from my mates, from my from my work. That's people's everyday reality right now, even even amid this sort of economic mess that is unfolding with inflation that we, we don't really know where that's going to go yet. And I think it's really, really scary for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that comes across in the stories you share is that that anxiety can have serious health and mental health implications for people completely out of their control. And I wondered if you could just share a little bit more about how you see that relationship between housing and health play out, in, especially in that private rented sector. It's so obvious, but yet so little discussed. And um, this is also why not sure that the term housing crisis is that helpful because it kind of almost um, dissociates us from what we're really talking about here. We're not talking about an abstract policy failure. We're talking about a completely predictable and avoidable human emergency at the very heart of everything that ought to be solid and stable in our country, like where people live, the foundation from which they go out into the world of work or interact with their colleagues or interact with their friends, their families the way they participate in society, that one thing, their base is not stable. And if your base is not stable in the most fundamental way, you are not gonna feel good. If you can't afford your home, you're going to be incredibly stressed. If you don't know if you're gonna be able to live in your home next year, you're never going to feel 
well, peaceful, like you can plan ahead, all of the things that human beings like to do. And I think that gets so lost in the conversation and the media bears, bears a lot of responsibility for this because of course we report on statistics and we keep up to date with news stories as they come. But I think behind the statistics, we, we have to remember what we're talking about, which is people who are being uprooted and displaced regularly. And there is a lot of research that's emerging about the impact this has on people. So we know that people who have been evicted are more likely to feel depressed and suicidal. Um, and, and even potentially to suffer with, with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. There are some studies that I mentioned in the book that have looked into that, uh, particularly mothers with children who are evicted. The mental health impact of that is really severe. And also on the children themselves, like growing up, being displaced has an impact on you as you are becoming a human being, becoming a person, developing a sense of self. If you have constantly moved from place to place or you felt that your parents are stressed, that has an impact on you and I think we don't even know what the long-term picture will look like for for all of the young children that I've met for instance in temporary accommodation who have been living in tiny rooms and converted office blocks um what what will that do to them as as they get older how will they have been shaped by those experiences of sharing bathrooms with strangers in hostels for instance I mean it, it really, really cannot be underestimated how atrocious those conditions are. Um, but there's also really interesting research on how this precarity and, and what I guess I will loosely term here housing stress. So eviction, unaffordability, poor conditions, I'll put that in the under the umbrella of housing stress, what that does to a person's physical health. So there's this brilliant researcher called Dr. Amy Clare. Um, and when she published the paper I'm about to reference, she was at the University of Essex. And what she did was she looked at a biomarker called C-reactive protein, which is found in everyone's blood and it's produced by the liver. And it's generally a, a, an indicator. I mean, she put this much, much better than me, um, an indicator of, um, of, of stress and inflammation. And it, it can be an indicator of certain diseases as well, um, including but not limited to cancer. And she and her fellow researchers compared CRP levels of homeowners, people in social housing and private renters. And they found that they were the highest for private renters because private renters experienced the most housing stress. So we know that this is making people sick physically and mentally. And I think it makes complete sense. That's what I meant by it's so obvious. Your home is so so important to your sense of self and your sense of security and stability. And if that feels like it could be taken away from you at any time, or indeed it is taken away from you, or it's not a safe place to be, um, it will erode at everything in your life, your well-being, and then everything else becomes a lot harder to do. It becomes a lot harder to hold down a job, it becomes a lot harder to parent, it becomes a lot harder to just get up every day because you're dealing with something incredibly stressful I mean everyone always says right like moving is the most stressful thing you can do we all know that moving even even if it's for a good reason because you you've bought a house and you're excited to get to your new house moving is hell it's so stressful unless you've got so much money that you can just I guess pay people to do it for you even then that would probably be you know stressful to have to box everything up I don't know I've never done that but it's still the upheaval is stressful so I think we need to remember what we're talking about when we're talking about eviction, when we're talking about rent rises, when we're talking about poor conditions, people 
being thrown out of their homes. We're talking about them having the one thing that you cannot function without taking away. Mm. And I, I think that's what's really interesting is the idea of the people at the centre of, of this conversation so often get forgotten. Um, and what I was particularly struck by is this idea that people living in private rented aren't a homogenous group. And I think we risk doing that sometimes. You talk about the idea of generation rent, which is a useful term at points, but that can uh, add this assumption that young people or the next generation are the only people to be affected by these kinds of issues. And actually, most of your stories, I think, were, were from people that weren't in generation rent, as we would probably conceive it. So I just wondered about the kind of idea of different generations experiencing this crisis differently or whether there is commonality across them and how we might think a bit more inclusively about how we talk about the crisis itself. I think for some good reasons um, and some not so good reasons that the idea of generation rent really took hold and broadly, certainly in my experience of various newsrooms, um, it became shorthand for young graduate professionals who can't afford to buy houses. And that's true. And that's, that's a really big part of the housing crisis. And I don't think for a moment that we should downplay what that is doing because that's also putting pressure on the private renter sector because as i just explained people can't get onto the property ladder so it doesn't free up space in the private rented sector and it drives up prices because they can afford to pay more so landlords know that they can start charging more so that the presence of young professionals um and the people we conventionally think of as, as generation rent in private renting is a huge part of this story um, and, and of course, rising house prices, which which really, really have, have hurt that demographic, um, are a really, really important part of this story. But they're not the only people who are renting and don't want to be. And we really have um, not told this, the whole story. Uh, so several things to, to think about here. There are a lot of older people renting and the number of over 40s, people in their 50s and people in their 60s renting has also been going up in recent years. And if we don't do something, that is going to continue to increase. And generation rent, those who don't ever get to the point where they can buy or inherit money and buy or whatever, or their parents don't remortgage or take money out of their pensions to help them buy, which is also going on for that reasonably wealthy demographic like their parents are getting into debt or taking money out of their futures which they might need for adult social care to help them get on the property ladder so they can get out of renting but that demographic generation rent are going to age and there will there will be a big problem because right now even with the changes that are coming into adult social care we do still rely on people having money to fund their care in old age and if you're renting and you've not saved and you don't have an asset that you can sell potentially that's going to be very difficult but there are right now older people renting and I don't think they get spoken to and their stories don't get get told enough so there's one guy in the book called Tony who I've been in touch with now for five or six years and he's been evicted multiple times he's a pensioner and it's really really hurting his health and it's also making it very difficult for him to stay settled and it's it's been I think I think the world would be traumatic for him to keep being evicted um and if the point comes at which he he does need to find money to pay for care or need assisted living or whatever it's going to be very difficult because 
there are not many modified properties in the private rental sector and it's not like owning your home where you can put in a stair lift you know you have to talk to your landlord and stair lifts are expensive and I think that is an aspect of this crisis that doesn't get discussed as much as it should um, and the the CEO of Shelter once described older renters to me as a ticking time bomb um, and I think that that's pretty accurate and they, they know that in Westminster because they keep having meetings about it and producing policy papers so I don't think um, that's lost on them but what what the plan what the plan is um, I'm not sure and then I suppose younger people who are not young professionals although I really should stress that I think people on middle incomes are really struggling as well people who we would maybe maybe think of reasonably well off maybe they earn slightly above above average if you're paying high rent and you're in a city because you need to be near your job you you are handing over huge chunks of your pay packet to a landlord so this is hurting people on middle incomes too um but but my concern about the younger end of private renting is mothers with with children and young families um who rent privately because on average they earn less than men, probably even less likely to be able to buy a house, they're shouldering childcare costs often alone, and they're living in privately rented homes at the mercy of a landlord. Perhaps they would have once been able to get social housing, but now, even though they might have what we term priority need, um, the waiting lists are so long that it's very, very difficult for them to, to get a social home. And as, as one of the uh, people who kindly let me share her story in the book Lamara was told she was earning too much to qualify for for support so she was actually told by a housing officer to stop working um, which was completely counterproductive for her um, because she wanted to have a career and she wanted to set that example for her daughter um, so that's where we're at and I think that we've got into we've fallen into a bit of a trap with generation rent um, even convenient as it was to, to highlight the, the, the issue of falling home ownership and rising house prices, because it's excluded a lot of stories. And I think what that has done is cause a missed opportunity for coalition across different socioeconomic groups um, and, and across generations. And I think something that I perhaps have either even participated in at various points in my career depending on where I was working is this you know this intergenerational warfare that it's young versus old I don't think this is about young versus old I actually think this is about those, those who have wealth and, and those who don't um, and those who can buy up homes and those those who can't those can buy who can buy and those who rent um, and we have missed an opportunity to really talk about who's responsible for sorting out the housing market by falling into that trap. And it's, it's so convenient to blame landlords. Um, and of course, there are many who, who behave terribly. Um, and I've, I've lived in homes they own myself, and I've been into many homes that they own and spoken to tenants in terrible conditions. But those landlords are sort of they're like the acceptable bogeyman of this crisis, but really this comes back to what, what is what is the role of the state here when it comes to the housing market? It is to legislate to make sure that people have safe, secure and affordable homes. And I think particularly since the 80s, it's failed to do that. 
Um, I'm absolutely going to bring us back to who has responsibility in a moment, but I'd love to pause on just some of these stories that you mentioned, Tony there and Lamara, who both feature in your book. And I think reading it, it was incredibly powerful how these stories were paired with the culmination of all the policies that had affected someone and brought them to that position that they were in um, with, with the changes that happen around them. And I think it created a real sense of kind of urgency and energy in, in what needs to happen. I just wondered how those stories impacted you in, in writing it and how the evolution of the book happened with those stories so central to kind of the narrative that runs through it in that way. It's a really good question. Um, well, it's in, in my job, I meet people from all walks of life all the time, going through all sorts of things, often very, very difficult situations. And I'm really mindful of what my role as a journalist is. And I think this is a conversation that comes up more and more actually as journalism evolves. And so many of us are on social media. That's like a big part of our jobs now and everything comes through. We're, we're the filter for everything that we're sort of shining a light on or trying to inform the audience. Um, about but I think I really really see my job and particularly with this book but also in my reporting more broadly my, my, my role is to educate and inform but when I'm telling someone's story I'm really just the conduit through which that story is told and I think with this book because it was written over so many years I became very very involved in the people who appear in the book and also many many people who I've spoken to who, who didn't actually make it into the book but have appeared in various articles um, you get to know them very well, you know what's what's going on with them. And it's very difficult because of course you really want to help and get involved, but I don't think that necessarily is what the job of the journalist is. I think it's our job to tell the story and do it justice and bring what people are going through to a wider audience sensitively and responsibly because um, that, that's something else that we really, really have to consider when someone is going through something traumatic and there are safeguarding issues. And I think that has to be taken incredibly seriously. But I can't say that I don't get affected by speaking to the same person several times, whether it's for a quick article that's going to go in the paper next week and we've spoken maybe three times or whether it's one of the people I've followed for years who appears in this book, like Tony or Lamara or Kelly um, and everyone else you know it's so frustrating actually to to see them coming up against the same issues although I mean I don't want to spoil everything for anyone who hasn't read the book but it's not always it's not always a bad outcome but it's really frustrating to keep I think with housing in particular I guess because that's my beat hearing people come up against the same barriers which shouldn't exist it shouldn't be so hard to find a, a stable home that you can afford there should be enough social housing um and so it is, it's not easy to always remain detached, but I suppose it's thinking about what, what are, you know, what's the purpose of journalism and what, what are the ethics of it? And I think responsibly telling those stories in a way that can shine a light on what's going on, make people feel seen and heard, and also, you know, hopefully show why change is necessary um, is, is always the goal. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to draw those parallels between um, your wider journalism and, and writing for a book where the audiences might be quite different. And um, I've always found it quite interesting, kind of the coverage of housing in publications where you might not expect it. And I think probably Refinery29 is a really interesting example of bringing policy together with uh, kind of more um, uh, journalism around fashion, I think, is on there and, and other elements like that. Um, I wondered about the audiences you wanted to bring it to. Um, you talked about education and understanding. Do you think that's an, a route for change to happen as well? I'd like to think so. And I suppose in my experience of journalism now, which spans almost a decade and a wide variety of publications and outlets ranging from Radio 4 to Newsnight to Grazia, uh, a website that was that once existed called The Debrief, where I was deputy editor, which was aimed at, it was like Grazia's little sister, aimed at a younger audience of women and, and now Refinery alongside the Eye paper, which, you know, the Eye is a national newspaper and the and Refinery29 is aimed at a, a demographic of young women and non-binary people broadly um, between 18 and, and mid thirties, I'd say. So I think for me, it's always been really important to reach the widest possible audience. Um, and, and of course you have to do things in a slightly different register depending on where you are. But something that really strikes me, not just with housing, I mean, cause I've reported on other things too, I think is a lot of people don't know their rights. They don't know what legislation exists and they don't know what's in that legislation. And I have noticed over the years that the way that a lot of what goes on in Westminster get, gets reported has a very high barrier to understanding. And I think we have to acknowledge that like most people don't re read the Queen's speech. Most people don't read the budget. Um, a lot of people are not watching it. Even a programme like Newsnight, which does incredible journalism, has reasonably small readership. And so I think it has to be about and by it, I mean journalism, it has to be about telling stories in a way that people feel engaged in. And often that is human stories and showing what people are going through, but it's also breaking policy down and being able to demonstrate like, this is how policy impacts people. This is how it impacts you. This is what it means. Um, and for instance, with section 21, I, that's, I think that's a really good example of a very complex piece of legislation Like most people probably don't know the extent to which the 1988 Housing Act impacts them if they're renting privately. But it's about saying, hey, there is this piece of legislation and this is what it means. And actually you do have rights if you are evicted and there is a proper way to be evicted. And if you've not been evicted properly, there are things you can do or like you have rights if your flat is covered in mold and your landlord won't fix it. Um, and I suppose it's trying to reach the widest audience possible and explain how that all works and direct them to support too. Um, and that, that's true whether we're talking about rising living costs, rising energy bills, rising food shops or, or renting. And I think Refinery29 is a really interesting proposition actually, um, because that has an incredibly engaged audience of young people and work and money broadly as a topic is, is huge. And it's really what the brand is known for. And so many of the conversations that we see our readers having, um, whether it's in our Facebook group, Money Diaries, or 
on Instagram in the comments is really like, I can't afford to do this or this. Has anyone got any tips? And when we write things that are about housing, like I just did a, actually, to be honest, the written written articles are even less a part of this now, um, both at the iPaper and at Refinery, because a huge part of the job is being able to condense things down so we can do them in a reel for Instagram. Um, or increasingly TikTok too. And I think actually the challenge of someone saying, okay, can you can you explain why we haven't got enough social housing in one minute for Instagram is one I really relish because if you can do that and you can explain to people how this really, really complex thing has happened in a way they can understand. And then maybe whether, you know, whether that's when they're voting or when they're writing to their MP or when they're making decisions about their life, depending on who they are and 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 what powers they have that information is really really powerful so I think it comes back to informing and entertaining but regardless of the publication it's about breaking things down as simply as possible and not assuming and I think this is something that really really does happen in political reporting not assuming that everyone knows what you're talking about because they don't um and and I think that's why so many important issues get lost so it's it's really important to keep breaking it down and I think that's something I, I know many of my colleagues who are always trying to do. Yeah I'd, I'd completely agree and it reminds me of um, back when the tenants fees were removed um, and, and banned I ran some focus groups the week afterwards with young people to talk about their housing and in that room only one person knew that that change had happened and you just felt like something hadn't resonated they hadn't seen themselves in that reporting or understood how it related to them but actually most of them were private renters and it was going to have a huge impact on them but they just didn't something hadn't quite connected but also I remember this so clearly obviously having been involved in that um yeah. in that campaign but I noticed um a couple of Westminster based political journalists at the time were very dismissive of the inclusion of the letting fee ban as part of the Tenant Fees Act um, when, when it was announced in what was then the autumn statement with Philip Hammond, although obviously we don't have the autumn statement anymore. And they're like, oh, this is such a crowd pleaser, not an important policy. And I was like, not an important policy. They just saved millions of people, thousands of pounds. But because of the reporting, like thinking about the politics of it, and what the kind of to and fro is in Westminster and also what journalists are interested in, right? Like we, we, we have good stats on how many journalists are privately educated, but I'd love some stats on how many privately rent. Cause at that time I was renting. So I knew how important that was for people cause I was being charged through the nose every time I moved. But if you're not, maybe that is, that is what imp impacts how we report and what we think is important because we're human beings. And I think with the way that the letting fee ban and the Tenant Fees Act was covered, you could tell it was like, well, wow, yeah, you're a homeowner and it shows. And that's fine, but like, it's also our job to think about what most people need to know and, and want to understand. And um, I, I thought that that's a really interesting example to bring up. And it's so interesting to hear that in those focus groups, people didn't know that it had happened because it was front, it was only on the front page as I remember it of two newspapers. Um, and, and really that was really, 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 really big news. But this comes back to the coverage of housing and the focus on people not being able to buy homes. That is what excites people. And still to this day, if I write about house prices that we can guarantee will always get eyeballs on it because everyone wants to know if they're going to make money on their home. Everyone wants to know what's going on with house prices, but something that's maybe 
a bit more consumery like okay what's what's the tenant fees act what does it mean for you how much money are you going to save um maybe is a little bit less exciting to write about but actually so important for so many people there are now millions and millions of people renting that that impacted them directly but in its most basic sense I kept wondering why I didn't see headlines that that read things like letting agents can't take your money anymore it's illegal just so simple because that that is what had happened um but I, I think it's really interesting to think about it through the lens and I talk about this in the book as well through the lens of class and privilege and who gets to tell stories and who gets to decide what's on the news agenda um because of course where you come from and what your experience is whether it should or not but it will impact how you report on things and you know I'm more interested in house prices now that I own my flat like of course I am because I'm worried about going into negative equity but that doesn't mean I shouldn't be reporting on private renting because there are still millions of people who rent privately um but I do think I do think there's been a bit of myopia in that respect and I still see it like I I think what's going on with rents right now um is really really troubling and I the way the data is recorded is is a is problematic we don't really know what people are paying we have asking rents from property websites like Zoopla and Rightmove um because obviously they know how much people are listing their properties at but that's not necessarily the agreed rent and it's not like house prices where the ONS can publish from the land registry how much homes were sold for so I'm hearing from people that landlords are just randomly putting rent up but there's no central verified database of that the ONS has an experimental um rental index but it's not reliable and I think that you know why are more journalists not talking about that we don't know what millions of people's housing outgoings are and that's not factored in to consumer price inflation so when we talk about inflation there's potentially this huge cost that is actually not being discussed so of course those people won't see themselves reflected in coverage of the economic crisis that is rising living costs. Um, I'm hoping we've got time just for one more question because I'm, I'm conscious of time, but uh, I wondered if we might close with a bit of a look ahead uh, to the future and, and what you might like to see. Um, I won't ask you to solve everything we've talked about because I think that's a tall order, but um, I think you know across the book there are references to other places or policies that are doing things differently to the UK that we might be able to learn from um, and that try to take a bit more control back over the rental market or to change the power within it. Um, and I think if let's put to one side no fault evictions, let's assume that's going to go ahead as promised. Is there anything else you think we should take away from this conversation, from your book or from your work as a priority for what needs to change uh, in the market in the future? I think what I hope people take away from the book um, and from my reporting more broadly is, is how important home is and how housing ought to be a really, really central policy pillar from which other things are built out. And if you think about that in basic terms, if you're a private renter right now, your rights, your future, how much your rent is, like the responsibility for that is split across several departments. So the Treasury, Department for Work of Pensions and the Department for what is now the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. That department's name gets changed all the time. But let's call it the Ministry of Housing. Um, and actually, it, it needs to be more joined up. And I think there is a great homelessness approach called housing first and the premise of housing first and this is it started out as a 
as a strategy for helping rough sleepers, the premise is really simple. You can't help someone get off the streets if you don't give them a house first and then sort everything else out from there, whether that's substance abuse problems or unemployment or mental health, physical health, whatever it is. I think we could take that idea, that concept and apply it to housing policy more broadly before we can do anything else, right? Before we can look at what's going on in the job market, before we can look at reforming the benefits system, the welfare state, before we can think about people's well-being, we need to make sure everyone has access to a safe, secure and affordable home. And that makes so much sense because you cannot function if you don't have one. So I think that's the biggest shift I would like to see. I would really, you know, for as long as I'm reporting on, on housing um, and even long after I'm not, if, if, if I end up reporting on something else, um, I'd really, it seems so obvious. I don't know why it hasn't happened already. Just sort out housing and then let's work out from there. That's a pretty powerful and succinct way to end our conversation. Thank you so much. It's been really great to speak to you and to hear more about the people that you spoke with and, and the issues that come up in your book. So thank you so much. Um, thank you also to everyone who has joined in, tuned in to join us today. If you'd like to learn more about everything we've discussed, Vicky's book is out today uh, and you can order from Foils using the RSA discount code RSA20 uh, if you'd like to order it from there. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in our global fellowship community, you can also uh, visit the rsa.org. Thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.